Welcome to CV Now, your podcast from Houston Methodist Debakey CV Education. I'm your host, George Tripsus. This too shall pass. We will look back and be proud. What we have been really blown away is that the whole world is coming together to make this innovative therapy, so many trials, so many things, so many shared learning. And I think we want to be part of that shared learning. We can make a difference. This week, we're bringing you part one of our series on critical care during the COVID-19 era. Starting with early experiences and lessons from critical care physicians in the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Faisal Masood, Medical Director of Critical Care and the CVICU at Houston Methodist Hospital, moderates a discussion with experts at the Houston Methodist Multidisciplinary Critical Care Team, including Drs. Daniela Moran, Stephen Sue, Deepa Bangalore-Gatur, and Atia Dalla. Together, they sort through some of the early information and misinformation in the early months of the pandemic. This conversation was recorded on March 31st, 2020. Welcome to the special edition of the Debakey CV channel, COVID-19, let's learn together, early experiences. So we're going to share and talk about some of the most commonly discussed topic which is happening all over the world, COVID-19. And the reason is that in our home city of Houston and our state of Texas, this is a rapidly increasing number of cases and patients. So we wanted to share with all our brothers and sisters in critical care and others who are facing this in different cities, different countries, different states. So with that, I'm gonna start briefly. This, and the pandemic, an event of our lifetime and our lifetime, it's, it's, it's really taking all, all of our lives, our professional lives, our public life, and it's very important to get the right medical information out. With that, you know, one of the key factors is in this day and age of media and WhatsApp and text, there's an abundance of information and misinformation. In fact, the WHO has declared that is as an infodemic. And that really is an excessive amount of information which makes the solution to our problem more difficult. So we're going to try today to kind of sort out some of that misinformation bringing the right information from the, our frontline team and they will really help to do that. Do we have all the answers? No, but nobody else has. So we're going to learn together, we're going to share together and hopefully to impact together. With that, I'd like to introduce my esteemed panel. First of all is Dr. Stephen Shu. He's a pulmonary critical care physician at Houston Methodist Hospital in our medical intensive care unit. Welcome Dr. Shu. Thank you. And I'd like to introduce Dr. Daniela Moran. She's also a pulmonary critical care physician in our medical intensive care unit at the Houston Methodist Heart Center. Thank so you. welcome, Dr. Moran. Thank you. So the burning question, you know, we all have been inundated with uh, trials, studies, you know, and, you know, abundance of a lot of things happening. So let's start sorting out some of these things. And what I'd like you to share is, you know, how have you started your clinical management of the patient, which you all have seen a very exponential increase in number of cases in your intensive care unit. So welcome, share with us, how did you start, where you are, what are the something clinical aspirations. So welcome, Dr. Moran. Thank you. 
So um, I had the opportunity, in a way, uh, to be the first doctor to admit a patient in our intensive care unit with this condition. And the patient was transferred from another facility, very sick, um, uh, high FiO2, high PEEP, hypotensive. And of course, uh, as a frontline physician taking care of these type of patients, you are worried, uh, am I going to be safe? Is my family going to be safe? Uh, uh, the, what about the rest of the team? So our objective was uh, pretty simple. And if I can post it up here, we said we need to protect ourselves and others. We uh, decided we're going to be calm and keep it simple. And I think what made it very important in our team is the preparedness. Uh, the unit was designated as a unit which is going to take care of uh, this condition. And uh, we decided as a team uh, that we do have the knowledge, we have the expertise, the technology, and we are able to apply uh, most up-to-date treatment and technology to take care of our patients. And I want to assure our patients, our patients' family, they will do everything to be able to take care of this condition. And I think preparedness and centralized efforts each helped us to stay off that crisis mode. We see it experienced in other facilities. And of course, the effort is not only physicians, nurses, pharmacists, uh, and uh, leadership, and everybody else which uh, participated and contributed. Um, Anyway, what were our strategies? Uh, probably most important part, it was early diagnosing and testing. I think the, the, our lab was uh, at the beginning started testing in January. So can I you know, interject that I believe uh, Houston Method has developed its, its own uh, testing, which was FDA approved, and we were one of the key institutions in the state which started to do very early testing. And I think that may have played a role in patient being early screened identified as you mentioned you know i think that helped yeah actually changed that screening from days to only few hours so we're able to triage our patients early to re-stratify and then as a team uh, immediately actually steven worked with me we created this uh, 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 specific icu care protocol of lab work uh, testing and uh, treatment ventilatory management weaning and then icu care so it was a real-time uh, work, and as you mentioned, the patient started with one patient, then three, and then 10, and then exponentially the number increased to max capacity of our unit. Um, I think the, the most important part, which made a difference for both us and the patient, it was daily communication with family and the psychosocial support. We decided we're going to communicate with patient's family, which are, of course, segregated from seeing the patient and visiting the hospital, probably themselves under quarantine. Um, and, uh, and it made a big difference for both patients and family. So I can share some experiences if you like. Oh, absolutely. So if you have more than to say how you know, we focus a lot of times on uh, clinical aspect, but we're dealing with humans and we ourselves are human. So I think it'll be good for us to hear your uh, story of your patients, which actually happened. Yeah, so as I mentioned, the first two patients were very sick, but uh, we were able to control the situation. And um, I, I communicated with the family and one of the husband mentioned, 
please, my wife, she will be worried if she doesn't hear that my son is doing well, the bills are paid. So we communicated through the phone and with the patient, and I could see through her eyes that she was ready to fight and help us through this process. Actually, um, um, uh, I can share some success stories. Our first patient uh, had been extubated. Uh, I think average time on a ventilator was around uh, uh, eight to ten days and transferred to uh, post-ICU care and I think some of them even discharged of the hospital. So uh, before we go Dr. Shu, would you like to elaborate what ventilator strategies you were you had initiated in those early patients and did you actually evolve or change any of your ventilating management by the time you went from one patient to a twin, your patient number 24 and having a full ICU, did you, how would you like to elaborate on that? So you know, uh, there is a lot of information on the internet, uh, everywhere, so, and all kind of strategies to treat. We decided to separate our patients, and I was planning to talk about other topic, but we decided to separate our patients into, uh, uh, with respiratory failure in two types. The ones they require low uh, level of care with low uh, uh, oxygen per nasal cannula. Uh, we usually recommend it for them to be monitored on the floor and of course to uh, avoid aerosol generating procedures. And then the ones with worsening condition, the ones with uh, uh, increasing FI2 requirements, uh, worsening uh, respiratory distress, they were moved to the intensive care unit. And we actually um, uh, decided to do early intubation, first of all for controlling of the situation, and uh, later on creating this um, uh, early uh, intubation team uh, which assisted us with a controlled intubation effort and control monitoring of the patient. Dr. Shu, yes. uh, you know, you and Dr. Moran were there when you started the first patient and you uh, were there pretty much the first in a few days nonstop and you all were devising, modifying, learning from different countries. So share with us, how did you start doing your clinical management and different topics area? Sure, so um, what happened, uh, Dr. Moran and I, we both started uh, on that weekend where her, she had the first two patients, I had the first two patients. Uh, one of the patients came from in-house, in respiratory failure, in distress, and we had to decide right there on the spot to intubate her. So what we have done is we uh, approach with a uh, modified rapid sequence intubation for the patient to reduce the aerosolization uh, risk as well. So we did the proper PPE, our face shield, goggle, N95 uh, gowns and uh, gloves. And that, at that moment, I actually double glove um, just to make sure that there was uh, reduced the risk of that. Uh, it was um, a challenge. The patient's BMI was greater than 40. Uh, we were lucky enough that we were able to get it in. Uh, video laryngoscopy, uh, one attempt. And since then, um, patient rapidly declined despite of the intubation effort. So on the ventilator strategy management, uh, we ha had to do the conventional ARDS approach, uh, whereby we increased the PEEP and we went up on to uh, ipoprostenol and eventually we, f we do prone therapy for the patient on the following day. So are you... I mean, there's a question caps keeps on coming up on ARDS and use of alprostadil or flonan. There's a talk about inhaled nitric oxide, which comes into place. 
and then so where do you think you know people should be using based on the current evidence should they start with flowland first should they start with nitric oxide first should they start with proning first how do you see playing all of these things and what sequence do you think has worked so far? So that's a very good question. I think from our experience, uh, we initially were refrained from uh, pr early proning. We decided to do the chemical route using a proprostanol um, because of the availability. However, we also noticed that uh, we our gain uh, the oxygenation stats for the patient may be, uh, it may be slightly improved, but it may be limited. Um, so in that case, we decided to prone, and these are relatively um, heavier patients with larger BMI, but our team was able to do it manually without rotor proning, and from our colleagues in Europe and Asia, we have noticed that the proning seems to be uh, on the recommendation side. So we, we were able to put up the team with the, um, to prone them early. So in that case, uh, we found that the PF ratio gain was much better. Okay. Um, I have a particular patient where a PF ratio start was 80, mm -hmm. and post proning it went to 260. So this brings a very interesting aspect of how these lungs are, uh, could be different than the all usual ARDS patients. Um, what we have noticed is by 80, 90 percent patient comes in, they have generally good compliance, but uh, profoundly hypoxic. Um, so very a very large shunting uh, pathology behind. Uh, with the COVID-19 uh, pneumonia. So we're gonna raise the question that um, as I and my partners have begun caring for critically ill COVID patients, we have been impressed by the lack of septic encephalopathy compared to the typical bacterial pneumonia ADS patient, necessitating higher dose of sedative and analgesic to prevent ventilator synchrony. In particular, what particular have you found most helpful during ventilator weaning? So we created our own uh, winning protocol specifically directed for this type of patients and if I have a moment I can uh, put it up on, uh, on our screen. Um, of course it's a, it's a very busy screen but uh, uh, basically we focused on uh, sedation because uh, these patients uh, were limited access to this patient, we focused on uh, sedation, pain control, and also on using of restraints. Um, we, we created our own guidelines when do we start weaning. We wanted at least a PF ratio of over 200, uh, uh, specifically if uh, possible to wean PEEP down to, uh, to plus five, FIU down to 30%. And, and I think it was a team approach. We asked our mobility team to help and uh, our plan, it was not to wean, but just stop the sedation. Dr. Shu, uh, the role of neuromuscular blockade, how has it been your experience with the utilization of neuromuscular blockade? Do you have been running consistently or, or is it a bolus for form or how has it been in the early or during all the course, so shed some light. So, so during the first few days that we didn't know how to handle COVID uh, ARDS patients, we decided to do the conventional route. We used the neuromuscular blockade for uh, two, three days while they're <clears throat> prone or they're on um, respiratory failure state. Um, and then we decided to move towards using intermittent dosing. Okay. Uh, realized that even when they're prone, um, they're not uh, fighting as much and we're trying to keep them in a deeply sedated state, perhaps RAS minus four, minus five, and we utilized a minimal amount of neuromuscular blockade, of course, for downstream critical care uh, 
related uh, polyneuropathies and so forth. Uh, we were able to use it, for example, before proning or after uh, we were about to turn them back. So we, uh, in, in between, if they were fighting the, uh, okay. the vent dyssynchrony. Uh, Do you th go ahead. And also, one thing we noticed, because most of these patients are relatively dry, uh, we tried to stick with the uh, conservative fluid management as well. Hence, using propofol um, or other agents, they seem to put them in a high risk of hemodynamic instability. So we had to no options at times to really use a little bit of benzodiazepine, and we have used quite a bit actually at the beginning, midazolam, uh, and that really, um, as the question posted about the encephalopathy, encephalopathy uh, we, it really confounded the initial picture, whether or not if it's um, sedative related or if it's COVID related. So do you think proning should be standard of care in these patients? I believe so. We have close to half of the unit uh, receive prone, and a lot of patients only require one session, not even two or three, just one session, and that will be good enough to, to take away that initial insult and low PF. So how long do you think people should be duration? What is the duration you're using to prone them? About, uh, about 16 hours. The key though, the most important part is optimize the patient uh, condition, uh, make sure the ventilatory settings are optimized. Again, look at sedation, look at hemodynamic status. And when, when you do proning, we actually have uh, MICU team and surgical ICU team created an instructional video how to do it correctly. I'm talking about manual proning. Is uh, at least 16 hours to see the results and uh, do it correctly. And as Steve said, we notice improvement after the first session. Um, but I want to specify probably it should require a team effort. It's not only proning, it's probably all the other treatments, ventilatory management, sedation, and use of uh, treatment and medications. Uh, I have to say some patients actually, besides treating them with uh, epoprostenolol, we, we use steroids, we use diuretics, and, uh, and I think as a team effort on top of the uh, medications we use, and Steve is going to talk so about that, they helped. Where do you see the role of ECMO? Did you have you place any of these patients on ECMO? So um, my very first patient uh, that I intubated, I also um, did a bronchoscopy on, and also uh, she has been placed on ECMO. And the decision was rather swift in the sense that from the time of intubation to ECMO was a, short, a little bit short under three days. We went through the conventional uh, management in terms of neuromuscular blockade, proning, and despite of those efforts, patients did not uh, improve. Uh, we involve our ECMO team uh, much earlier from the first and second day because this is a we, because we don't know how the situation will turn out. We would like to proportion the, the resources at that time as well. So uh, I'm very um, grateful that our ECMO team got really involved early. We come together as a, a medical ICU and CVICU uh, effort together to put the two teams without mobilizing the patient out of the ICU, but in fact be able to still manage an ECMO patient in the medical ICU, which is not a usual thing that we do. So did you have to do you VV ECMO or you had to use VA ECMO and any of the patient that you had to put an ECMO? So currently what we have noticed is uh, the most injurious organ has been the lung. Uh, luckily we have not seen uh, as much the cardiomyopathy that um, has been, been reported. Yeah. Exactly, that has been seen more in Asian countries, uh, 5 to 10 percent. Uh, but in our population so far we're pretty lucky. Um, so we were able to use VV ECMO um, to support our first, um, uh, up, thing up to today we have about four patients oh, that's been okay. on um, ECMO. 
Okay, so we talked about you know basics of critical care. We talked about the ARDS management and preserving the kidney. You know, have you seen uh, any higher incidence of kidney failure in these patients because that keeps on coming up along with cardiomyopathy? How has your experience been? Yeah. Uh, Personally, I have to say, uh, yes, this is part of the restratification. We know these patients coming with rhabdomyolysis, uh, renal failure, some, of course, uh, high-risk patients with chronic renal failure, and we decide we implement early dialysis on this patient with uh, relatively good success. Um, I would say some of the patients we initiated early dialysis and uh, uh, CRT, actually, they're on their way now to be wean of the ventilator. So. I think the key answer is early and probably a team approach and protocol-wise. And we, as as a group, we decided to uh, to lead our community with uh, with our efforts under, of course, your leadership. And we're planning to direct all the efforts and hopefully create a guide for the rest of the community here and share our experience and probably our advice of how to how to do the treatment. Now, I do believe you have some pictures of your unit because uh, one of the more commonly asked question and concern is, what is the PP situation? If I look at any TV channel, everybody's talking about it. How should people do it? And one of the things that was mentioned with Dr. Moran was about intubation. And Dr. Shu described, is that the same way of intubating? And you, or have you all changed and evolved in how you intubate? So I think that'll be very curious for the audience to know, um, how are you doing this thing? And how would you like to shed light on? So Dr. Shu and Dr. Milan, you know. I wanted to show you some uh, pictures in our, in our ICU. These are protective uh, uh, personal equipment we use. And of course, we are using the N95 mask, uh, which uh, um, are made to select up to 95% of uh, the particles. And then uh, for the procedures, specifically the one which are uh, uh, generating aerosol pro uh, producing procedures like bronchoscopy, this is our team. Uh, um, doing a bronchoscopy on a patient on ECMO, which uh, required mostly for secretion clearance, they use the, the PAPR, uh, the, the powered air purifying respiratory. Uh, Dr. Shu came with some innovative uh, approaches. So I think that leads to the question which is being posed, Dr. Shu, mm -hmm. is that what precautions or protocols do you follow at home every day to make sure you don't infect your family member because uh, that ties to how we do uh, ourselves and how do we take care of patients in the ICU and how do we uh, you know, protect our families also. So uh, if you can share some of that thought process. So um, as you can see, our colleagues uh, probably in Asia that have been literally quarantined uh, two weeks after their first work uh, on the front line. Unfortunately, we don't have that luxury. Um, we're in and out every day. So uh, what we have done so far is to provide a set of scrubs, uh, excess sets of scrubs to all the providers. And we switch into the scrubs uh, when we come to the shifts. And we're uh, trying to isolate and be very careful um, to stay away from my family, at least for the time being, uh, for the first few days. There's no set guidelines, but I make sure I clean and go straight to shower. That's a lot of our providers are uh, worried about. And I think we'll take our standard precaution. Hopefully, we'll be reducing that fear as well. I think uh, one of the most important things we all can do is that we do a, 
as a team, as an institution, as a team. We do a great job of uh, you know, donning and doffing and doing the best equipment possible that would really make an impact on how we protect ourselves, how we protect our patients, and how we protect our families. Because those are real life, real life things which are, uh, people are dealing in different parts of the world. As Dr. Shu mentioned, uh, we, people are trying to you know, take showers, different rooms, and other things. But the, the, but the most important thing is how well they protect themselves in the intensive care unit and emergency room or other location. I think that sets the stage for that. But also keep it simple. Uh, hand washing is the most important thing. Don't panic, and and I think uh, things will go their way. And social distancing, I sh I think it works not only outside but also in your family. And we practice it, and I think it's important. So uh, there's a question which come from the audience. Uh, did you use APRV? It seems like the perfect patient population for this mode of ventilation, Dr. Shu. So um, we, uh, my first, very first patient before she went on ECMO, I did try the APRV. Um, however, in that situation, um, the patient was too sick for it to show any improvements. However, subsequently, we have, to st we have used a little bit more for those with borderline uh, conditions, borderline PF ratios, who only receive a little bit of improvement despite a prone therapy, then we would expand it to the APRV. Um, from our experience from colleagues in New York, for example, ha they have used it a lot earlier, even at the, uh, at the ED stage, uh, which is something that I think we're all still experiencing, uh, whether to use it earlier versus late, um, that we're still looking at. But so far we're using more towards the, the, the time where we don't see improvements uh, of the prone therapy. Okay, good. Dr. Moran, any closing suggestions before we bring another panelist on this thing? Could you like to share? Uh, as I said, we have a ventilatory protocol, and again, we follow the ARDSNet protocol for ventilation. Of course, there are always things can modify dependent on patient needs and requirements, but, uh, but in general, the most important part, make sure you keep the plateau pressure less than 30, the driving pressure less than 15, and be aware of consequences when you deal with high pressures on this patient with uh, low compliance and ARDS. And that's all I can say. I know, that's good. Thank you for everything you do. So Thank let me you. go to Dr. Shu uh, when we change our panelists. Dr. Shu, uh, one of the key factors what we see all across this country and all of the world is people are coming up with new ideas. Yes. People are on the job creating things. They are creating devices, they are creating new protocols. And I've been really impressed with the ingenuity of humanity all across the world. So would you like to share some of the innovative approaches that you all have done, tried out, or creating, or thinking? So right off the bat, we have noticed um, that we use quite a bit of PPEs at the very beginning, especially we're, not, we're all single room ICUs, so go in and out of the room uh, creates a lot of a wastage of PPEs. So as we have seen across the country, um, our colleagues, they have used, for example, uh, on the PowerPoint I have here, we'll be able to see on the left-hand side that we put the pumps outside of the uh, hallway. And with the extensions, uh, extension uh, lines, we're able to make this happen. And one of the questions that at the early uh, infection control state is worry about the line touching the ground. So we have come up with using the IV poles 
to hold on to these uh, lines through the ventilator so it doesn't touch the ground. Also one of our nurses was able to uh, produce some of these stands uh, with little hooks on the side, I call them the T-bars, um, to allow us to not only get the lines but also to, to, to store the equipment right outside the rooms. And on top of that, we also um, come up with the continuous glucose monitor, especially for those who receive steroids, for example, with steroids-induced uh, hyperglycemia that requires uh, Q1 and Q2 hour glucose checks. With this device alone, is really, really help um, in managing the glucose control. We don't have to go into a room to titrate and adjust the insulin pumps. Also, we have created a prone cart uh, and for the healthy team to be able to get all the resources they need uh, to go from patient to patient when we perform the prone procedure. Uh, last but not least, as you can see on the far right, this is our uh, ability to screen in uh, using the video camera available through a tele-ICU approach uh, that we can have direct communication with the provider in the room without needing to go into the room. So this is in this particular case, we were uh, performing our first ECMO, where we have direct communication with the uh, cardiovascular surgeons at the bedside while we're monitoring everything from the outside room placing the order, getting all the stuff done. Um, so this creates a very nice uh, bridging uh, for both in and out of the room without needing everybody uh, gown up and crowded, crowded the room essentially. So I believe that you all have created a way for the ventilator screens and models to be outside the room? So far there are stands available. Um, so that's something that we're working on to see if we can get that uh, monitor screen to be placed outside the room because that will also save the respiratory therapist uh, additional gowns to go in and out a few times. Because uh, looking at this uh, five to 10 times entrance or exit per patient, um, that's, we're talking about a few dozens of gowns to be, to be wasted. And you, I think model, uh an intubation and uh, you know uh, aerosolization box also which you piloted yes so um, when I did the first intubation I realized that uh, out of probably fear that the N95 and the face shields and goggles may not be enough so we came across a, a box design from Taiwan uh, aerosol box built from very simple polycarbonate or polyacrylic uh, plastic with two holes on the side and it, it helps to reduce um, the amount of aerosolization during the procedure while it's contained within the box. So as you can see here, we have trial the box, both intubations and bronchoscopy, and it's uh, doable. We have been using it uh, in, the, uh, in the ICU setting and also in the ED mostly. Our colleagues in ED really appreciate the use of the box, especially when you do not know if the patient is diagnosed or not. So uh, to avoid excessive wastage uh, and to protect the staff, um, they have now tried to use on everybody who suspected COVID. Um, another mo um, modification that we're planning to use is to apply a negative pressure suction pump that has a HIPAA filter on the side. So to create a, a, a nice uh, negative pressure containment area within the box so to prevent the aerosol from spreading out. Okay, good. Well, the next question really is about new therapies. And to answer that, we have our new panelists. Dr. Deepa Gutur, welcome Deepa. Thank you. She is a pulmonary critical care specialist working in our medical ICU. So, you know, I would like you to go a lot more about research, but let's start with this first question first, and then, you know, you can elaborate, you know, because there's so many trials, so many things are happening, and I would really love for you to educate us, to guide us. So the question is, has anyone attempted to use anacronina as an attempt to control the severe inflammatory response as an IL-1 receptor antagonist? 
Would you like to share? Sure. So the ARDS, the type of ARDS that we are seeing in these patients are hyperinflammatory. Most of them are hyper, and we've barely seen any patients who are hypoinflammatory. What that means is that uh, there is a cytokine storm or a cytokine release-like uh, syndrome where uh, your, uh, your T cells within your lungs are like secreting IL-1, IL-6, uh, TNF, I mean, a host of uh, the cytokine response, similar to when you get, when you infuse CAR T cell therapy. So we, uh, we learned uh, a lot uh, sitting down with our hematology oncology colleagues and uh, we started to use these therapies like uh, anti uh, monoclonal antibodies against IL-1, IL-6 receptors, I mean IL-1 and IL-6 cytokines uh, to see if they, uh, if they improved. Um, so we came up with a protocol, actually we have made a protocol uh, using, um, um, I mean, it's a team-based approach uh, uh, along with our hematology colleagues. Yeah, this is the one. So we made a ARDS and CRS um, combined uh, protocol. We okay. put together uh, clinical scoring and inflammatory marker scoring. Um, and uh, and based off of that, we were uh, we were at at a very early phase, like uh, using uh, tocilizumab, which is an IL-6 inhibitor, and uh, we would use it for two doses if that doesn't work, and then uh, we would go in with anakindra and infliximab, and uh, we are also uh, getting um, uh, we are going to also get started with uh, stem cell and T regulatory cell therapies for patients who do not respond to uh, to these uh, as well. So we have a full um, uh, a full set of uh, set of protocol. This is not the final one. I mean, the, it is going through modifications um, uh, based on uh, what is available and uh, what markers are readily available for us to uh, to test. So this, to start with the, all the research activity, Dr. Shu, you know, we started the clinical management. Dr. Kutur will highlight more about the research. Have you even ex extubated anybody since so the, all the patients come So coming? far, uh, I have we have extubated about three, four patients, uh, five patients so okay. far. Um, three were successful. We were able to send them out of the ICU. Um, the duration was probably about uh, from as little as three days to seven to seven or eight days. However, out of the five, there are two that re requires reintubations, um, and I out of because the patient was um, uh, condition becomes worsened again. So again, this is the first two, three weeks that we're seeing the COVID population start um, flushing into our ICU. So it's a bit hard to gauge who will, sir, who will need reintubation or not. And so I, one of the things that we have uh, as a group decided that once we extubate, we'll keep them at least in the ICU for about 48 hours for close monitor before we even um, send them out. And I believe you'll uh, also be able to come off one of your ECMO patients today. Uh, that's what I, we heard. Now, excellent, because, you know, we do all these therapies and we would like Dr. Gutu to continue educate us about all the research and element because, but the ultimately, the goal of all these intervention research is are the patient getting better? And as what you're telling me, some of them are responding, getting better to get them extubated, to get them out of the ICU, to get them out of ECMO. So Dr. Gutur, we would love to see what other therapies you're, 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 you're seeing, what you're applying at Methodist. You know, we would love to do that because that's a very cutting edge. 
Yeah. So uh, first and foremost, I actually wanted to talk uh, briefly about the kind of research that we have, we are, uh, we are facing at this um, uh, in this pandemic. Is that all therapies are new? We are taking therapies that have worked for prior viruses and and uh, and using it for this. We are uh, developing new standard of care guidelines. We are innovating, and so all of this need to be. Uh, I mean, we have to monitor. I mean, we have to look at their outcomes. So that's one basic thing that we are doing is collecting all these um, uh, data and evidence to see how well they're doing. So um, uh, and uh, so that's the main uh, main thing. But um, uh, the two important research that we are doing and, and uh, it's very difficult to do a randomized controlled trial in uh, faced with a situation like this. So uh, so we uh, we are one of the centers for the remdesivir trial okay. Good. and we have um, we have uh, recruited so many patients on these uh, on this trial as well and um, uh, and and it's going it's going quite well it's uh, it uh, it prevents uh, viral replication it reduces the viral uh, load and we are seeing some response and again we have to wait for their entire result to be able to say whether this worked or um, it, it didn't okay so the remdesivir there's a lot of talk about it and I think the, I believe a lot of centers want to participate how uh, are you able to successfully get it for all the patients that you want to give? Yeah, there are uh, very selected inclusion-exclusion criteria. We are trying to uh, sort of use it in an early phase. I mean, uh, like we've seen, um, uh, there is a viral phase, the phase 1 and 2A, and then uh, starting 2B and phase 3, okay. we have the inflammatory phase. So we are trying to use it uh, kind of early, in an early phase to um, uh, to see uh, to see its effect and uh, yes we we are seeing some response but again I think uh, ultimately we have to wait till um, uh, I mean wait till the results come back um, and uh, um, so that's that's one and okay. and our second success um, is uh, we our center is the first in America to be um, uh, to to use a convalescent serum and okay. we transfused uh, two patients uh, this past Friday and uh, we got a very quick FDA approval I mean I I was told in less than 39 minutes or to be exact 39 minutes so um, and uh, we have given we have transfused it to two patients and uh, uh, and we are yet to see the response but they're still intubated but we'll uh, will uh, monitor and that's that's the reason why we put together a whole registry for uh, Methodist Hospital to see what's working what's not and um, okay so I, you know before I ask you to go guide us to all your treatment algorithm a very interesting question come up which is actually burning question all over the country about PPE and masking so I'm gonna pick up on Dr. Shu, okay? <laughs> so the question is, does your hospital has universal masking policy, meaning that healthcare provider wear surgical mask at all times? So I think we, uh, as a nation, has um, been very back and forth in this decision. I think also the availability of the amount of masks that's available, the guideline has been changed from time to time. I think currently what we're seeing from the New York and New Jersey, the tri-state experience is that perhaps the next phase in controlling the pandemic is moving towards that. Uh, we've seen success in Asian countries where they have 
everybody uh, wearing masks at different levels and not it prevents not you or the ones without the disease but it prevents those that may be asymptomatic with the disease from spreading it out so, so should you uh, have wear a mask when you are taking care of a patient in the hospital whether you are taking care of a covid non patient or all patients um uh, this is probably personal and anecdotal i would recommend however one of the bigger thing that we also have to recommend is the hand washing hygiene not to touch your face not to touch your nose your eyes uh, one of my colleagues in new york for example he was running the uh, as a hospitalist and taking care of covid patient he was mask glove uh, and he contracted the covid 19 and as you know that uh, at houston methodist uh, starting last week and our policy uh, as you know has evolved and we have mandated wearing of masks for all healthcare providers in all clinical areas and that's that's the thought is that how do we minimize known and unknown because the who data and cdc says that up to 25 percent patients uh, may have no symptom so and they can be shedding so I think in the increasing number of cases, uh, I think our decision made the institution made the right decision of uh, healthcare providers wearing masks in all clinical areas. The general societal question with Dr. Shu and Dr. Gotor will and we all face is that should all people in when they're in outside activity should be wearing masks. But I think we're still trying to push people to do social distancing. Mm -hmm. Yes. So they all go hand in hand, hand washing, social distancing, and masks. I think that's very relevant. So Dr. Gutur, uh, before I, uh, you know, I think there's another cash uh, question of mask, and I, well, I want to get back to research, but we have a lot of questions. Um, other hospitals have begun a voluntary masking program in which employees are given a surgical mask each day to wear throughout. There has been reported anecdotal benefit from state like New York, New Jersey, has your hospital had any experience with this? I think it relates to the same. We have implemented mm -hmm. that. And I think not only our institution, but Texas Medical Center Hospital uh, with that. And I think that's a good policy. Mm -hmm. So I think let's get back to your protocol because I mean, I think that's very important. How, which drug to give? What are you looking for? How do you integrate all of the therapies? So I think it'll be good with your graph, with the viral load that you have. I think it'll be very important to share yeah. with the audience. I think you had a very nice graph on that. Yeah, I think so. Go ahead. So, um, so in the first uh, uh, first stage, I mean, we want to kind of diagnose them early, and we have in-house testing, so that's uh, excellent uh, for uh, for us in that situation. And also starting the antiviral therapies, uh, whether they qualify to remdesivir or not. I mean, we are uh, putting them on uh, lopinavir and ritonavir, the Kaletra medication, um, along uh, along with the ribavirin. Uh, and I know there was a New England Journal uh, article on, um, on lopinavir and uh, ritonavir that um, uh, that it was uh, it was not that helpful. But uh, when we reviewed this paper in depth, it, um, they were recruiting these patients on day 13 or randomizing these patients on day 13. So it's very imperative that we do early testing and put them on these antiviral medications because not everybody qualifies for the remdesivir. Uh, I'm sure once the trial is out and uh, it's successful, uh, everyone 
should and can be on it. Um, and uh, some of the other adjunctive or, or immunomodulatory uh, therapies that we are also using is um, um, is the azithromycin and atorvastatin. So that takes us to the, the next phase, the stage 2A, 2B uh, phase where the viral response is coming down and then your inflammatory markers are kind of uh, escalating. And uh, it, is, um, it is good to have uh, those immunomodulatory medications, um, um, whether it's azithromycin plus hydrochloroquine uh, combination, the malarial drug combination, um, or, um, or even uh, monitoring them for IL-6 levels, uh, their CRP, ferritin, uh, et cetera, monitoring them and seeing if they can qualify for early tocilizumab. Um, and uh, it's agreed that, you know, IL, I mean, with the tocilizumab, we are just blocking one uh, cytokine, and that's why we have put together um, our uh, ARDS and CRS uh, scoring. And we've seen that this inflammatory response is seen mostly in the lungs rather than um, uh, other areas. I mean, lungs and and po possibly like kidneys and then uh, and then the heart as well, but it's, um, that's... So a question come up for you, Dr. Gutur and Dr. Shubot, uh, that Italian critical care intensivists have been treating patients with 100 milligram IV methylprednisone Q6 to 8 hours for seven days from intubation, along with an antiviral agent, previously Calitra, now looking at remdesivir, hydrochloroxine, and IL intubator tosi, if the patient has a cytokine storm pathophysiology, have you seen any success with these therapies? Yes, we have seen success with the IL-6 blockers. We, uh, we do not want to use steroids within the first seven days during the viral replication phase. We'd rather uh, keep it towards the inflammatory phase, if at all, if the tocilizumab does not So work. let me ask a question. The patient that you mentioned, both of you, that you were able to extubate and get them out of the ICU and even carrying off the ECMO, was any one of them on some of these therapies? Yes, they were. They were. They so, were. So maybe there is a signal, you know, worthwhile to look at it. So the, uh, I do have a philosophical question. You know, we're seeing trials and publications and all this stuff based on one patient, three patients, seven patients, 20 patients. And we are all used and trained to bigger trials, you know, and all this stuff. Where do we stand? How do we do all of this thing? So how should we make sense of all of this So thing? Uh, the very first week when we start uh, is chaotic because there's really no formal firm guideline to tell us what to do. So we have kind of bundled everything to the max by using the Kalitra uh, ribavirin combo along uh, with hydroxychloroquine, for example. By week two, we took off the Kalitra because we know that it's not working in the later phase uh, for the patients. So, um, and then the tocilizumab where we give one dose and we still see some patient that has been in the hyperinflammatory state. So the, co the conversation is do we give more? Or can we do the Italian approach by using steroids? Um, so that's why Dr. Couture mentions that in the consensus now we're moving towards a little bit more liberal use of the steroids in the later half of the disease stage. Um, but again, this is an evolving process. I think the first and foremost is do no harm. And at yes. the very beginning, we, we felt that we have really went overboard with our resources in a few uh, cases. But at the same time, we, were, we wanted to see that improvement. And um, we do, so far, our, um, our, our, we, our three weeks in the ICU, we have not seen uh, mortality um, at this point. Okay. So, so, Dr. Gutu, you want to share some light? 
Yes, yeah, so again, so N of three trial, N of two trial, really it's not going to help us a lot. I mean, initially what we started doing is collaborating with our Chinese and Italian colleagues. We would have conferences, like teleconferences, to understand what they were seeing also. And then we, took, we put together like a standard of care guidelines for our practice in Houston. And of course, like patients in Houston are way different than patients uh, in, Ital in Italy or, uh, or in China, but we put together our standard of care guidelines and we of course had to modify it as in uh, when we learned a little bit more um, and like I mentioned it's very hard to do a randomized control trial and have answers right away um, so we have to uh, we ha actually we have to fall back to what we've always known how we've always treated ARDS right I mean we've always prone these patients we've always used low tidal volume uh, and uh, uh, I mean just uh, like there are additional infection control uh, strategies that we had to adapt and uh, and we we I think as a community as a medical community we have adapted very well uh, to this and um, and and yes like when you see these trials with very low N uh, we have to take it with a grain of salt and see okay. and do what's best for our patients well uh, with that you know I would like to thank dr. Couture and dr. Shu for the expert opinion while we uh, thank you dr. Couture dr. Shu while we bring our nursing colleagues as, as um, panelists, let me ask, look at this question. So the question which is posed is, are you expecting to run out of adult ICU bed in Texas Medical Center? And, uh, uh, you know, from a Texas Medical Center perspective, you know, this is the largest medical complex in the world. And, uh, you know, I think uh, what I can tell you is that the spirit of partnership across all the major institutions in the Texas Medical Center I've been very impressed how we all are working together. We're having weekly, you know, WebEx meetings, you know, and we are all talking. I think we all have the capabilities of really upscaling our ICU capacity. I think we all are prepared for be able to uh, manage a very high number of patients, even doubling our capacity. We do believe that, uh, you know, be a social distancing, early testing, and early skinning will help us to minimize the spread. But I think, you know, different models that have been shared publicly and everything are, are sobering. And the models, you know, if, you, if people do what they're supposed to do, then we can easily handle the capacity in the Texas Medical Center. But in the medium range or high range models, we are gonna be much more challenged However, the Texas Medical Center is, I think, pretty robustly prepared, and we're all talking. I think the best part of it is collaborating, knowing our capacity, ability to go up, able to type it, will be better prepared. So I want to reassure our historian that we're ready and prepared for you. So I'm going to ask them to kind of bring up my nursing colleagues, and Dr. Gutur, thank you so much. Thank uh, you. Uh, thank uh, you. Dr. Shu, thank you so much. Well, I'll take a look at uh, uh, some of the other questions uh, before that. Uh, so the question is, uh, have you guys seen, discussed the use of some systematic thrombolysis in patients given increased risk of both pre and small, P, uh, both a PE and small thromboembolic seen in Chinese autopsy? So yes, I think the literature has increased a lot in that there is, these patients have a higher incidence of thrombo thrombotic events, they have high incidence of DIC. So in some selected patient, we are uh, doing a lot more aggressive, uh, you know, thrombolytics, uh, th not thrombolytics, thromboprophylaxis, 
and in some of them we are even using low dose heparin because we have found on ultrasounds in some of the patients who have DVTs and some PEs but very small but I think the risk is there so I would encourage that as long as it is safe we would encourage and I think it is important and we are also doing that. With that uh, you know I like to kind of go to my next panel list and these are the most important people I live on a daily basis. These are the intensive care nurses. I like to say that my job is an easy job. I give order, but the person who has to do it is a bedside nurse. The person who spent the most time with the patient's families is a bedside nurse. The person, the most, all of you and all of us should thank as a bedside nurse. I think they've done a fabulous job. I'm so honored and privileged to work with excellent professionals. And let me introduce, you know, so let's talk about our team members. Would you like to introduce yourself and kind of say a little bit more background so we can have much more dialogue because I can't, you know, go and imagine what you all do on a, on a, in a, such a tough environment daily basis. So, I'm Kay Gloria. I'm the nurse manager in medical ICU. And my name is Amy Alderman. Um, I'm an ICU nurse. I'm also one of the charge nurses in the medical ICU. So. Let me pose this question. We heard from Dr. Moran. We have not to shoot. The first patient came in. There was a lot of anxiety, a lot of apprehension, but then you all start to gel. So would you like to share this concern? Because we have seen, uh, you know, news feeds. We have seen people sharing of your uh, nursing staff from different parts of the world having a challenging time. So would you like to share how have you managed? This has been a very trying time, I'll say, uh, around the world, but we have definitely pulled together as a team to um, support each other in this. Um, it's a scary time, and we're nervous for our patients as well as our own families. Yeah, and I agree. I mean, the, the main thing has been sticking together as nurses, you know, sharing information, things that we're doing that's working, that's making our workflow easier, communicating with the physicians, communicating with the executives, you know, we've we've had to all come together and support each other because a lot of us are staying isolated from our families, you know, and so we've really had to, you know, at work and emotionally support each other. I think that's where the team spirit for yourself. So the question keeps on coming up, you know, is uh, about the PP for the nurses, the front line, whether they are in the emergency room, whether they are in the intensive care unit, about the PP and protection of the healthcare team. In fact, the nurses a lot more than the others because they are the one who are spending a lot of time back and forth. So share with, if you can share with the audience, certainly they want to know, especially the uh, nurses would want to know, yeah, the PPE situation, how are you handling that? How are you minimizing your exposure? So I would love to hear from that. Yes, that's so um, the main thing that I'm thinking, I'm just being mindful from the very beginning of my shift when I've worked with these patients, you know, um, how many times do I need to go in the room? How much can I do while I'm in the room? Um, and we've, we've had the PPE that we've needed. We've just had to be very, we've had to think about the sustainability and try to think about, you know, is night shift going to have enough masks? Is night shift going to have enough gowns? And we have had enough. We've just had to be smart about it, you know, reusing the mask when we can, when they're still, you know, clean, when they're not soiled. Um, but that way we're protected every single time we go in the room. We've been trying to cluster our care, um, just being organized and making sure we have everything we need. 
We've upped our staffing so there's people out in the hallways. If they need to bring you something, that way you've only used one set. You, you're not like, oh, I forgot something. I need to go leave the room and grab something else. So yeah, that has definitely made a big difference. Dave. And of course, on the management side, we are working closely with our central supply to conserve our uh, PPE. We do uh, understand that where we may have had you know, five to 10 isolation patients. We have a whole unit of isolation patients at this time. So we have to be mindful to conserve our PPE. We are making sure that both shifts have PPE available daily, but we want to conserve. We want to save those masks and use them at the appropriate amount so that we can protect ourselves. That's the most important for our staff. We don't want them to, you know, expose themselves or their families so we're passing we're doing uh various things like we're having our nurses change into scrubs during their shift you'll see the charge nurses wearing yes. <laughs> one of the scrubs that they are changing into nice. during yes. the shift and we have available showers for them to utilize before they leave and go home to their families so they can change out of those uh, scrubs and back into clothes uh, that will protect their families keep them safe I think that's very paramount and I we saw earlier in the presentation that you all have come with innovative approach which are we do duplicate in some other like having all the pumps outside mm -hmm. having the ventilator um, you know screen on the outside using tele ICU to manage uh, mm -hmm. we saw the better uh, glucose management so they don't have to do that to really be mindful of the number of blood draws and everything because every time you're going back and forth, uh, not only you are uh, you know, increasing chances, but the utilization of PPE. So I, I love that, that you have thought all of these things and, and evolution within a, within a couple of weeks time. I mean, these things through bureaucracy sometimes take a lot, but I, I sense from you all that you're not fading much barriers. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely, yeah. Right. Um, we just we had to adapt quickly because these patients, we, we had two and then we had four then we had nine then we had 24 and so it was just where where one person was spending so much time and so much ppe going in and out of these herbs we're like this is not going to work because we have 24 of these patients and we have this many nurses and we have this much ppe so we had to adapt and we had to figure out how to make our workflow easier and so i think you mentioned that you all have been creative or creating you know scrubs for the nurses mm -hmm. shower area and everything how is your families? I mean, because we saw an earlier question also about families and concern because, you know, so how are you dealing with your families and how are you managing? That's a very day-to-day -day issue. So it's been very difficult. I'll say that I've been spending a lot more time with the staff, just sitting down and checking in to see how they are because a lot of the staff are having to isolate themselves at home from elderly parents, from young children, and others in the community. So we're kind of isolated already on our unit so that we keep you know, the spread from around the hospital. So we kind of try to stay in our unit. So that's one isolation. Then when they go home, they're isolated as well. So it's very concerning. I tr um, we've 
offered several services at the hospital, including um, our employee assistance program where they can speak to someone without a copay. They're able to do that virtually. So that is one um, available thing. Also, some of the nurses have gotten together and started something called a Zoom where they're doing exercises and yoga to, to try to de-stress on a daily basis after work. They're having dinners together and just, you know, coming together uh, with a, a camaraderie of this difficult time. Can you teach the doctors this thing? The, I, I would love to know. <laughs> <laughs> this is fabulous. So the questions come up is, how are you rotating in nursing staff and what kind of staffing models are you using? So we've definitely increased our staffing. I mean, fully staffed for us before was 13 nurses. So that's, you know, one nurse to two patients and a free charge and that's all we would have. Now we're up to, you know, 18 every day at least, um, approximately, right? Um, so house-wide yeah. and system-wide, we've actually put together a pool where the other ICUs in our particular hospital as well across the system they volunteered and I just want to thank everyone it's been mm -hmm. awesome uh, nurses want to step in to help they want to be a part of what's going on so that we can you know treat patients without our current staff becoming burned out or just the emotional difficulties of being on the unit every day can be overwhelming so we just appreciate so much of the support from our nursing community uh, here at Houston and Methodist and our other uh, system hospitals. So uh, the question really is that on the nursing piece wise that uh, you know there are routine operations are not happening um, and clearly a lot of the outpatient you know nursing staff is not active at all. Are they helping you all in some form or fashion? Do you think they can be resourced, they can utilize to help support some of you or is it only ICU team which are helping each other? What, how's your experience been? We've had some of the, we've had some like PACU perioperative nurses um, come on the unit. We call it, we've been calling them support nurses um, and they're, they're there, you know, they don't know our unit, but we've been teaching them about what we've been doing and they've been able to help us, you know, even if some of them can't go in the room. So yeah, um, okay. it has been helpful for sure. I think, uh, you know, um, so basically, you know, our, uh, you know, I think, you know, is there any message you want to, um, uh, you know, trans so is there any message you want to share with your colleagues, you know, uh, on from, because they may see a lot more patients, they may see a lot more complex situation, anything you'd like to share before we close some of these things? Sure, I'll talk about just the eye care with our virtual ICU. Um, I, we came in at a great time where we implemented the virtual ICU in our unit and were able to connect with families. Um, one of the stressing things on our unit right now is that we do have uh, patients that are from one family. So it's hard a lot of times for uh, the outside family members to come in and see their, their, their loved ones. So we're able to use the cameras and uh, send a link on, on our CareBridge system for our virtual ICU where they can link into the cameras and uh, interact with their family member and check on them. That really has helped ease their concerns so they're not able to visit right now. So that's really been a wonderful thing that we've able to implement right now. So I think there's a question which is tied to your uh, thing. 
have you needed to repurpose your nurses or NPs in order to fill your nursing staff needs? Um, yes, somewhat. Kind of what Kay was talking about, having the different nurses from other ICUs. You know, we have some nurses who can't work with these COVID patients. They're pregnant, they're older, they have some kind of medical contraindication. So we have had nurses from other ICUs come in to help us. And yeah, just trying to rotate them because it is a very physically demanding and stressful job taking care of these patients. And, and absolutely. And I think, you know, the uh, question keeps on coming. And I think uh, they talk about the PPE and the reuse of PPE is for the nurses because as you mentioned, you know, uh, any insight that how is your experience about the PPE and the reuse of PPE or being conservative and be mindful of utilizing your PPE? That's a question on right. the board. Well, of course, we work closely with infection control to look at the um, manufacturer policies on how many uses uh, we have on the PPE. So we're protecting the mask to make sure that they're not soiled or compromised and we can reuse them and conserve them uh, in between uses. We're abiding by those guidelines from the manufacturers. Um, as far as our uh, other PPE, we are, like we said, cluster in our, clustering our care so that we are not going in and using PPE unnecessarily for you know simple things that we can put together and cluster. So that's one of our uh, strategies right now. Yeah, for the um, for the N95s, it's basically been one per patient per day um, for the for the nursing. So you have, unless something happens to it, if it's clearly soiled or you know you get really sweaty, then change it, but mostly one N95 per day. And um, we've luckily had gowns most of the time, um, but yeah, just trying to cluster the care so you're not going through, you know, 10 gowns or anything like that. I think that's a very smart approach. I'm gonna take one last question from uh, the audience which is not directly related to nurses but i think <laughs> so uh, what vent strategies are you using are you seeing more ARDS physiology or different any experience of thrombosis with DIC so i think the panel earlier went into detail with the mentality management you know i think the ARDS picture is much more pronounced i think what you saw from and heard uh, from the uh, panel before was proning makes a huge difference Yes, we are doing seeing some degree of low-grade DIC. Yes, we are seeing some degree of uh, uh, thrombo thrombotic events, not big PE, small, and we are actively, you know, anticoagulating, not full systemic, but other low degrees. So, uh, one again, I think we are question: Have we had any heart transplant patient test positive COVID-19? If so, how have you managed immunosuppression? So far, uh, we have not seen a heart transplant COVID-19. We have managed uh, an, uh, an older lung transplant patient. And what we did was we collaborated our lung transplant team, our, all the, you know, our, our ID team and critical care team and they managed. And I think that patient uh, is doing a lot better, you know. So it's again, if you go back, it's all about different patient will show to you, different pathophysiology. We are learning together. And you know, when we learn together, it's all about constant communication, constant dialogue. And with that, you know, I'd really like to thank all of you, Kay thank and you, you, all of the nurses who are there, all the nurses in each hospital in our city, in our state, in our country, across the world. Salute my hat, salute to all of you. I think the nurses and the doctors which are fighting the frontline battles on behalf of our patients, 
on behalf of other healthcare team members, on behalf of everybody else. It is not over. And you all in the lay public can really make a difference by following the recommendation of a lot of hand washing, social distancing, and kind of do that because that will tip. It is not over at all. We are seeing more number in Texas and more number in U.S. And we need to stop that tide. And, you know, I think what I've been told by other people, because we're living this in nonstop, that this too shall pass. We will look back and be proud. What we have been really blown away is that the whole world is coming together to make these innovative therapies, so many trials, so many things, so many shared learning. And I think we want to be part of that shared learning. We can make a difference. And the only thing which FDR you know, said that many years ago is the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And that should be, we have to mind that because we shall, this shall pass and we will overcome this thing. We are here uh, and on behalf of the nurses, I'd like to thank all of you. I'd like to thank all the doctors, all the respiratory therapists, pharmacists, chaplains, you know, uh, physical therapy, RT, other consultants. You all are making a difference and we'd like to thank you and hopefully keep on keep doing the good fight and we are there with all of us together. Thank you so much. Well, that's our show for today, and thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your experiences and takeaways caring for the COVID-19 patients in the CCU, so send us a tweet using hashtag CVNow. And don't forget to tag us at debakey at CVEDU. If you like the show, please hit that subscribe button and leave us a review. You can find more digital cardiovascular education opportunities through Debakey CV Education by following us on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Thank you for listening. <laughs>